justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta Welcome to the 10th episode of Justify. You're with me Orghus and Gupta and today we'll be joined by Anuj Bhuwania, the author of the excellent book Courting the People. We'll be discussing public interest litigation in India, its genesis and its present status. But before we do that, it's time for our roundup. today is a bit different on the basis of advice from my trusted research associate pranay modi we thought it would be informative to give you a background of the nirbhaya case many have written in and many more must be wondering as to what's happening with the hanging what is this endless procedure that seems to delay their hanging despite successive dates being announced so we thought that we would unpack this case a little bit and talk to you about the delays not necessarily at this stage but at previous stages in the proceeding so our round up today is only on the nirbhaya case as all of you know on december 16th 2012 the streets of delhi witnessed the horrific gang rape and murder of a 23 year old medical student dubbed nirbhaya within a few days of the incident the delhi police arrested five adults and one minor in connection with the crime they were charged under the ipc and because of the tremendous amount of public pressure were tried by a fast track court court proceedings started on january 17th 2013 and within 8 months five accused were convicted and given the death penalty one minor was sent to a remand home under the juvenile justice act subsequently one of the accused committed suicide in prison and so we are left with four accused on whom the sword of the death penalty hangs it's been more than 7 years since and the law has still not completed its course why has this happened on september 13th 2013 the accused were convicted of 13 offenses including gang rape and murder the death sentence was passed on them by a trial court in delhi any death sentence passed by a trial court requires confirmation by the high court pursuant to this the case was referred to the high court and in 6 months that's on march 13th of 2014 the delhi high court confirmed the death sentence then comes the first big delay on march 15th 2014 two of the convicts filed special leave petitions before the supreme court and prayed for a stay of their execution the supreme court granted the stay a few months later in july of 2014 the two remaining convicts also filed slps with the same prayer and all four petitions were tagged together and all executions were stayed the next hearing was on august 26th where the supreme court 
was informed that as per the newly amended rules, the matter had to be listed before a three-judge bench. The court then ordered that this procedure be followed. Following this procedure, however, meant that the matter was only listed and heard on April 4, 2016. That's more than two years after the matter first came to the Supreme Court. Over the course of the next year, the Supreme Court held 47 hearings, heard questions of law and fact, and on May 5, 2017, almost four and a half years after the incident, it pronounced its judgment declared it a rarest of the rare case and upheld the conviction and the death sentence. So you might wonder what happened between 2017 and 2020. This was the second big delay. Now, on November 6, 2017, convict Mukesh filed a review petition under the Supreme Court's decision. Two other convicts also filed review petitions, that's Vinay and Pawan, on December 15th. On July 9th, 2018, after more than seven months, the Supreme Court dismissed all three review petitions. Then, for some inexplicable reason, there was no effort to execute the death sentence for more than a year. The Final convict, that's Akshay, filed a review petition against the Supreme Court judgment in December of 2019. Within 10 days, the Supreme Court dismissed his review petition. So now we have come up to December 2019 from December 2012 when the incident happened. It's been seven years. So what happens between January and February 2020? At the end of 2019, all convicts have used up their review petitions. However, curative petitions, that's allowing the Supreme Court to correct an egregious wrong, as well as mercy petitions, that is a plea for clemency and forgiveness before the president could still be filed. On January 7, 2020, the additional sessions judge of the Patiala House Court in Delhi issued a death warrant against all four convicts. The date was fixed for January 22, 2020. This triggered the convicts into action, rightly so. On January 8th, Vinay filed a curative petition. The next day, Mukesh filed one. On January 14th, the Supreme Court dismissed both. On the same day, Mukesh filed a mercy petition before the president and a petition before the Patiala House judge for setting aside the date of execution. On January 17th, the president rejected Mukesh's mercy petition. And then a fresh death warrant was issued, making February 1st, 2020 as the date of the execution. Several other petitions were again filed. On January 27th, Mukesh challenged the president's rejection of his mercy petition in the Supreme Court. On 29th, this was dismissed. On January 29th, Vinay filed his mercy petition and Akshay filed a curative petition before the Supreme Court. All of these were dismissed. Taking note of the fact that Vinay's mercy petition is still pending, the trial court stayed the execution of all the convicts. The Delhi High Court heard a petition against the stay order passed by the trial court. It was argued that the convicts who had exhausted their legal remedies may be hanged first. 
the Delhi High Court rightly said no. It said that the law requires that persons who have been convicted and sentenced to hang for the same offence must be hanged together. It also directed the convicts to exhaust all pending remedies in seven days. Pursuant to this, on the 5th of February, the President rejected Akshay's mercy petition. As of now, we are recording this on the 8th of February, no applications are pending in any forum. Akshay and Vinay have the option of filing a writ petition against the President's rejection of the mercy petition. In parallel proceedings, the Centre moved the Supreme Court against the Delhi High Court's judgment on the 5th of February and the court said that it will wait till the next hearing to see if the convicts have exhausted their remedies. Meanwhile, in the last twist to the tale, the Tihar jail authorities have also approached the Delhi High Court seeking a new date of execution. That date is still awaited. We can see what's happening here. From the point of view of the counsel for the convicts, this is an effort to take every single recourse that the law gives before the death penalty is carried out. This is both strategic as well as wise because if the death penalty is going to be meted out, then every possible legal remedy should be exhausted. But at the same time, from the point of view of the ordinary person, it does seem that procedure is becoming much more than the handmaiden of justice. It perhaps is obstructing justice. But it would be mistaken, in my view, to blame this procedural delay on the events of the last two months. The real delays occurred in listing the matter before the Supreme Court, which took an inordinate period of time. The country does require to have an honest debate about the death penalty and whether the death penalty is required or not. And if the death penalty remains on the books, then there must be a procedure to carry it out that is both fair and seen to be fair and not obstructing justice. Because if the legal system doesn't operate fairly and efficiently, we know what the alternative course is. It's the instant justice that we saw in Hyderabad where the four alleged rapists were shot dead by the police in what was quite clearly a fake encounter. So we must be clear on what we are up against and that delays in the justice system must not lead to an erosion of public faith in the judiciary. This does not mean that convicts should not be allowed every single remedy to stop a death penalty from being carried out. It means matters must be listed by courts quicker. Our deep dive today is on public interest litigation. Hard cases, it is said, make bad law. This is widely considered true for the Supreme Court of India, which held in the height of the emergency in ADM Jabalpur versus Shivkan Shukla that detainees under the Maintenance of Internal Security Act 
could not approach the courts if their fundamental rights were violated. Not only was the law laid down unconscionable, but it also smacked of a court more executive-minded than the executive, complicit in its own independence being shattered by an all-powerful government. There were several phrases used by the court which essentially indicated that life and liberty guaranteed by the constitution to every Indian was the bounty of the government. And really, it was one of the darkest days for the court. So deep has been the impact of this judgment that the Supreme Court's current activist avatar with public interest litigation is widely viewed as having its genesis in a continuing need to atone. Expressions of such atonement have created, in my view, another court made to measure, this time not to the measure of the government, but rather the whims of some of its individual justices. Justice Bhagwati, the pioneer of the public interest litigation movement in the Supreme Court, publicly apologized for his judgment in ADM Jabalpur. At his behest, the court came to the rescue of bonded labor, girls in protective homes, under-trial prisoners, minimum wage workers, and several other disadvantaged and needy groups in society. The radical nature of such judicial intervention, coupled with the sweeping nature of orders against elected governments, makes the inference irresistible that public interest litigation was the court's humanist and shrewd atonement for its genuflection before the government during the emergency. Today, however, whilst public interest litigation may have restored some of the independence of the Supreme Court that it might have lost in the emergency, there are warning signs again. Public interest litigation achieved a degree of public profile for the court, but perhaps at the cost of quality, judicial discipline, and the constitutional role that judges are expected to perform. Today, the court monitors criminal trials, protects the environment, regulates political advertising, lays down norms for handling sexual harassment cases at the workplace, sets guidelines for adoption, supervises police reform, administers cricket in India, decides on who should enter particular temples, among a range of other governance tasks. That all these tasks are crucial, but tardily undertaken by the government can scarcely be questioned. But for an unelected and largely unaccountable institution such as the Supreme Court to be at the forefront of matters relating to governance is equally dangerous. The choice of issues it takes up is arbitrary, their remit is not legal, their results are often counterproductive, requiring a degree of technical competence and institutional capacity that the Supreme Court simply does not possess. In this light, there have been some signs of withdrawal. Justice Indu Malhotra's dissenting judgment in the Shaparimala case seems to be bringing back some procedural limits on public interest litigation. Chief Justice Bobde's recent suggestion in the Supreme Court that the court is being used for party political ends is also a statement in the same direction. Today, it seems that public interest litigation is a pill too far. But where is it going to go? And how do we see the future of public interest litigation in India?
That's what we'll discuss in my tete tete. Today I have with me Anuj Bhawania, who's a professor of law at Ambedkar University and author of the excellent book Courting the People. Thanks very much, Anuj, for joining me today. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you for inviting me here. It's a real pleasure. So let's let's pick up from a few strands of the book, which I enjoyed very much. I was recently reading an article that was written by Saurabh Shukla, who was the judge in Jolly LLB. He had written it in the edition of Outlook magazine on the 26th of January on the topic, how just is our judiciary? And I felt there was something interesting in what he said. He said that the reason why Bollywood dramas on the court seem unrealistic as opposed to Western films on courts is because in India there's always a posho for drama and we really want things to be dramatic and we can't have it stayed. So do you think having authored what I think is the seminal treatise on public interest litigation in India that perhaps some of the reasons for the growth of public interest litigation could similarly be attributed to the perhaps unstated desire for some drama in terms of a case which is a cause celebre, in terms of some good guys who need the court's help and the bad guys, typically the government, who are not doing anything. Do you think there might be something to that? That's an interesting argument. I think, yeah, I think he does have a point, but but. In fact, that is part of the design of PIL itself. Uh, there's no doubt that PIL has captured the imagination of, of the people like no other court process has um, in, in a while in India. And in a sense, it is part of the design. Uh, PIL was, in a sense, the culmination of the of the 970s, the perceived crisis of the Indian judicial system, which was uh, underlined by Mrs. Gandhi and her left in Mohan Mangalam uh, repeatedly about the fact that Indian, the Indian legal system uh, was not Indian enough. So the, the idea that it was an alien imposition, that it was Anglo-Saxon, that it was too formalistic and therefore un-Indian uh, was, was part of the, the allegations. I mean, of course, there was a question of elitism, which, which uh, they, they repeatedly underlined as well. But, but definitely this was part of the issue. And if you look at the 70s, uh, you know, the reports that came out as a result, uh, you know, led by Krishna and Bhagwati, who, of course, uh, not coincidentally are also uh, the, the self-proclaimed founders of PIL. Um, you know, the reports in legal aid that they authored, the three, four of them, 973 onwards. In fact, that was part of the point that they would keep saying that, you know, uh, and, and in fact, in many of the early PIL judgments, uh, Bhagwati would say that, you know, this is Anglo-American and we, we need to. So, so this is, a, in a sense, part of the idea of decolonizing the Indian legal system and making it more indigenous. The indigeneity question was always there. So in a sense, yeah, uh, uh, that uh, Mr. Shukla has got that <laughs> point right, that, well, uh, that this was actually the, 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 what was planned. And, the, and not just PIL, but, but the other aspects, uh, other new uh, institutions that came up at that time, local adults, people's courts, 
Uh, well, they're not as dramatic. In fact, even PIL, I dare Mr. Shukla to stay awake for the whole day watching <laughs> as I had to do many uh, uh, for, for, for a while. Uh, so they sound dramatic, but I mean, they can get very, very dramatic at times. But Yeah, but I guess the, uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. But, yeah. but I guess the larger point, as you rightly made, is one of indigenization. Absolutely. And we want something that's more authentically Indian. Absolutely. And so PIL is the answer yeah. in post-colonial India. Yeah. But that's actually a very interesting genesis that you attribute to PILs. Because the common story that everyone typically hears yeah is that PIL is part of this redemptive exercise of the court. Uh, it's seen in the public perception as being complicit in the emergency, particularly with its ADM Jabalpur decision. It needs something to for public confidence to be restored. And what better way to do it than public interest litigation? How do you see these two tropes playing out? So I think that redemption issue and uh, redemption trope is actually accurate but the, it still begs the question why did the response take the form of PIL? It yeah. could have taken other responses. For instance, I, I, in fact, talk about it in, in the first chapter of my book that uh, obviously Adim Jabalpur was an instance of the court spectacularly failing to live up to, uh, to, to uplifting um, um, civil liberties, the most, the most basic one, the right to life. But of course, the court's response wasn't uh, in the arena of civil liberties. The court's response was something else mm -hmm. and, and that uh, uh, is in fact uh, the court moving towards populism, the court sp starting to speak in the, in the name of the people in a way that no court uh, had done prior to this. Uh, Professor Bakshi, in a book that came just around the rise of PR in the Supreme Court in Politics, talks about how often the, in the Indian Supreme Court started using the word the people in a way that it had never done before. Right. Uh, so the fact that the court chooses to uh, address its legitimation crisis in this form rather than other forms it could have taken. That's so, right. Is, is definitely uh, something. And I think the interesting term that Bakshi uses, which you also describe in the book, is judicial populism. Now, we, of course, live in an age which has been characterized as right-wing populism, with populism seen as a pejorative term. Yeah. Uh, and Bakshi seems to suggest that it was pejorative, but that it could be strategically used yeah. The desire of the judges to speak in the name of the people could be strategically used for some gains. Now, how do you see judicial populism as a person who's thought about the Constitution deeply? Yeah, there are many aspects to this. Uh, so, of course, uh, Professor Bakshi, as you rightly said, did strategically, uh, you know, embrace this uh, as as the need of the time at, at some level and. And in fact, towards the end of that book, he discusses many instances of the early PR cases, you know, the prison reform, etc., subsidy patra, etc., etc., as instances of that. And the problem was that from the beginning, it was thought of in instrumental terms, in narrow instrumental terms, rather than broad instrumental terms. So, uh, you so know, would you so, explain that distinction so for our listeners? Yeah. So narrow instrumental terms was in terms of, you know, in individual cases, was it uh, was it leading to good outcomes or bad outcomes? What I mean the broader instrumental terms would be in terms of what was the impact on the judiciary itself, on the, in the institution itself, on justice, justice delivery in India itself. I think there, in my view, uh, well, there were, in, in, the, in the narrow sense, there, were, there have been instances where the, where the judgments have been very productive, where I would agree with outcomes as well. And of course, there have been judgments where I completely disagree with them. And that's a different kind of a, a you know, a, a issue. But, but in terms of institutional impact, I think the impact has been deeply corrosive. There is no other 
uh, there's, I took to my mind that it's, it's that's a strong word as a deeply corrosive. Could you sort of take us through some instances which have uh, led you to this view? Yeah. So what what has happened uh, over a period of time uh, has been that the court has decided that uh, you know, in, in, like I, like we discussed earlier about the, the indigeneity move that it made was that procedure itself was un-Indian. That mm. that you know, as as the, the line that they would they would repeatedly uh, enunciate would be that procedure is but a handmaid into justice and not its mistress. In the last four decades, there would be multiple. I don't know. Uh, I've always wondered about that line as yeah. to. So it seems to be deeply sexist at some yeah, level. Yeah. Yeah. But is. not its mistress. Uh, always used to wonder whether that's the epitome of achievement. Yes. That procedure can anyway aspire to be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I agree. I mean, of course, it's an absurd line, but but somehow judges love it. Um, and uh, what it has, what it has meant, uh, in a sense, what the way we invoke it is that. Procedure is, but it's actually an obstacle to justice rather than the, the instrument with it to operationalize it. Um, and you know, so for, and and this is this is a cross arena. So much of what I have been, uh, what I talk about in the book is of course about PIL, but this idea that informality is the answer, informality, the panacea to the crisis of the Indian legal system, um, has actually penetrated almost every aspect of, of 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 the legal system. When I was in law school in the late 90s. Um, we would often hear that you know PIL does not um, you know there, there cannot be PILs in criminal matters or service matters. Mm-hmm. There's no such rules, of course, anymore, and that is the very nature of PIL that no rules can 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 uh, you know obstruct its progress. In fact, yesterday in the in in the Sabrimala case, we heard uh, Mr. Prasaran argue that you know because it's a PIL, there cannot be a limit on its uh, on its uh, on the review jurisdiction, which, which the court has referred to, but this is just an example. This is just a, you know, every day there are instances when one can one can think about. And in fact, this idea of procedure being a problem has actually spread to the criminal justice system as well. In in recent judgments, Justice Jennifer actually gave a judgment on, uh, on on CRPC, on Criminal Procedure Code, where it was invoked. And uh, so what it has meant is that this is a, actually across the board. This is the view of the court that, mm-hmm. uh, and of course the, 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 there are many issues with this. Uh, I talk about. Um, you know instances in my in, in my book where uh, describing PIL cases and how they proceeded. So my own entry point. I'm sorry, this is going to be a long answer. Mm, sure. I like I said, I went to law school in the late 90s, and at that point, PIL was seen as the greatest gift uh, you know um, that Indian judiciary has given to global jurisprudence at some level. It was the most celebrated aspect of Indian judiciary, other than basic structure doctrine, of course. Um, and I, in fact, I interned with Prashant Bhushan, who's probably India's most well-known PIL lawyer. When another case was being heard, in fact, um, it was an interesting experience. And since uh, after graduating from law school, I actually uh, practiced briefly as a criminal lawyer, and then I went to graduate school in, in the U.S. was in the Department of Anthropology. And of course, I would hear about uh, judicial developments. You know, uh, I would hear about judgments on slum demolitions or cycle rickshaws being being banned in Chandni Chowk, and judgments of that kind. And I would sometimes think, well, clearly the courts uh, have are going in a different direction from what we had uh, what we had, where we had envisioned earlier. But uh, it was more in terms of the idea of this, this class critique that you know the the court is becoming anti-poor, you know the court is you know n- the neoliberal argument, mm-hmm. or as Professor Bakshi yeah. would, uh, would call it, the structural adjustment uh, of uh, judicial activism. But when I came to India uh, for my fieldwork as part of my this this book is actually an anthropology uh, is a culmination of an anthropology PhD which was converted into a book. Um, so what I observed then 
so actually my, my work actually started um, through a particular instance of uh, of a basti in in timarpur near near delhi university getting an eviction notice i had a friend um, uh, who used to live there and and the funny thing was that, that the basti dwellers the, the slum dwellers of, of, of that area had actually never heard of the 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 case under which the eviction was ordered so you know there was a eviction notice which mentioned a, a writ petition in the delhi high court where this eviction was ordered except these people had never been parties to the case and i was trying to help my friend with that with that with that notice and then i started looking at the case um, i started uh, you know looking prior orders i started attending the hearings uh, looking at the you know what the assistant engineer of mcd of the area was trying to do with under that case and uh, and then what i realized was that after i started following um, the hearing this this was the kalyansan tak case to talk about in chapter 3 of my book on um, this is the case under which the whole of delhi was divided into uh, municipal zones and each zone was given to uh, a court commissioner appointed by the uh, by the high, delhi high court um, who 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 are lawyers uh, who would uh, be uh, given the pass to um, to address all illegal constructions happening in that municipal zone i mean each municipal zone in delhi would typically have more than a million inhabitants it's a pretty large area uh, so anybody could so anybody could call up the court commissioner and and talk about illegalities happening in terms of um, you know in terms of uh, occupation of public land etc and uh, so sort of a parallel administration absolutely it was definitely a takeover of governance um, and then they would they would take that complaint to the monitoring committee which was also appointed by the court and the, the, the monitoring committee uh, would take it to court who would of who would say action taken report may be filed mm-hmm. uh, now when i when i uh, went uh, to for the hearings this used to happen in, on wednesday afternoons from 2 to 4 pm in the chief justice's court at the time this was that when uh, the acting chief justice uh, mr vijendra jain was the, was the acting president of the high court and then um, justice mk sharma was the, was the chief justice at the time um, you couldn't enter the court at the time it was so this was a this is delhi high court chief justice's court which is a pretty large court i mean it can mm. easily accommodate more than 100 people but you couldn't um, you know literally there was it was difficult to enter that court uh, and it was only one case being heard so uh, you know um, and of course what would happen is there would be the court commissioners on one side and the, and, the, and the government on one on the other side and there would be all the other parties whose who demolition orders have been ordered which mm. so what i said seeing was that this is not the kind of the first thing this was not what i thought pil would be you know i had had seen pils being argued before uh, and this was not what i thought adjudication would be actually mm-hmm. i mean this is this is beyond what i studied in the law school this is beyond any idea of adjudication that that i had earlier had so what what had happened and i said seeing so initially i started looking at slum demolition cases that's what my trajectory was that there were quite a few of these at the time but then i realized that actually the problem is not just that there is the kind of predilection that the, that many judges have against slum dwellers it is actually a general problem of procedure that I mean, if you look at the forest case of course which mm. has which was very much going on at the time and still continues uh, the court was actually not following a very dissimilar procedure that's right yeah. and then i realized that actually there are quite a few of these cases and it's not about a class bias alone there is something more systemically that is a problem that the court has decided that it can of course it can solve all problems of of or many problems of in mean, society this is what pratap mehta at one point called the jurisprudence of exasperation but at least he would use the word jurisprudence <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't what much much jurisprudence happening in, in in many of these that's right so cases. i think it's interesting that you that you say that it was neither adjudication nor was it pil yeah uh, or the way in which you hoped pil would grow but 
but I'm wondering as to whether we can take that point of indigenization forward yeah. and uh, just thinking out aloud that it seems to me playing devil's advocate that there is a kernel of truth to the argument that procedure is alien to everyday interactions that people have in society here. Now, now, do you think that there is some truth to this that maybe we shouldn't see how PIL has developed or how adjudication has developed in terms of what legal rules and procedures in the West are, right. but perhaps come up with a different, maybe more homegrown way of thinking about these issues. Yeah, no, this is of course the heart of the issue really, that as a legal sociologist, I face, uh, you know, that, that uh, in, a con in my interaction with, with students who, who are often not law students alone, that, you know, there's actually very little faith in the rule of law itself in, uh, among, many, among many, many people I interact with. Uh, now, um, going back to uh, the, to, to, I mean, this is of course related to what PI was trying to do. Uh, um, so I said it was not what uh, I thought PI would be. But actually, I was not completely correct. So I, in fact, came across this article by Shyam Diwan, where he wrote in the in the 90s describing Justice Kudip Singh's court in the Ganges matter and how it was being heard. And he said it was like a panchayat. So that was, in fact, the idea. In fact, uh, that uh, that uh, and I tried to uh, give instances of of this in many ways. In fact, the way the the the, uh, the embrace of popular justice really we are talking about of. So in a sense, what we're trying to, as, as you said, uh, the court is in a sense trying to mimic what they think are uh, culturally embedded ideas of justice or of, of, or of, of adjudication, actually, not just justice. Um, and they're trying to say that, well, we will try to indianize ourselves. But uh, so, you know, it's like uh, what the extant practices or ideas are of, of well, Indian people, the judges, you know, who are actually trained very much in the England and American system like you and I are. Uh, Try that, that to, to enact that, in, but it, it's interesting also because, um, as we know, PIL only uh, happens. Uh, I mean, PIL is only in the appellate courts, in high court and supreme court, which have increasingly become difficult spaces for to access for people in terms, not, not in terms of judiciary, but in terms of purely uh, in terms of entering those in a highly security uh, conscious places where, and if you if you go attend the. If, if people who have who have seen the courts in action realize that it's a deeply it's a space which are very distant. That's it's, right. You know, it's a you know, this leveried uh, people you know, mm. pushing the, the chairs and wearing turbans in a very colonial style, etc. So, so that part never changed. In fact, if, if people who have been to the trial courts, they they would see a much more accessible um, you know uh, system. But of course, procedurally very complex, very often. Mm. Um, so, in fact, the point that you raised was actually also spoke, spoken about by Mark Galanta and Jayant Krishnan in their uh, excellent study on Lok Adalaj and where they, they talked about how, and Lok Adalaj, remember, also came about around the same process and, and were authored by some of the same people, the design of it, as PIL was. So, um, so they, they, the aspect of Lok Adalaj, which of course was also replicated, has been replicated in almost all tribunals in India since then, uh, is that um, no civil procedure and evidentiary rules apply in, in, in this arena. And, and this idea of procedure being a problem is actually, uh, you know, incorporated in, 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 in the statute itself that they, 
they, they do away with that. And what happens as a result in terms of how the judges run the, uh, run the tribunal is described in, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's clearly not, um, so, so what they call it bread for the poor. They, they say that, you know, it's clearly, uh, that efficiency, uh, is, 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 is seen as more important than, uh, than in a sense, the quality of justice itself in, in these institutions. It and be the cakes for the poor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so in fact, they bring this, I mean, Magalanta is a well-known researcher, I mean, academic, uh, even among the, uh, in the judicial system, I mean, the, the judges, etc. And he took this research to the judges and he had, a, he and Jayanth, uh, and what was remarkable was the, was the response was precisely what you said, that, well, this is how things work in India. And, you know, maybe those fancy ideas of, of uh, you know, don't really get, um, are not really practical in India. And of course, this is a deep, this is a response one hears in general about, in so many aspects, you know, in terms of um, all the vigilante movies, uh, you know, from, you know, from, uh, even from Akrosh onwards or, or uh, you know, that, 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 that people get away with because of procedure, that there's excess of procedure, that there is um, procedure which is deeply alienating, mm. uh, in, of course, literally so, in terms of language, etc. So the, it's, it's true that obviously the Indian uh, judicial system in its design is, um, is deeply, uh, you know, Anglo-American in terms of, you know, how it, the constitution itself, and, and we keep hearing that itself as not being Indian enough. And so, so th it's an interesting kind of a quandary that we have that perhaps... Uh, the legal system does not really have an organic relationship to the Indian society, though in many senses, uh, uh, you know, um, the the people who frame these were trying to do that. I mean, we hear about, there's, a, there's an interesting study of Lord Macaulay and his ideas to speech in, 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 in drafting Indian Penal Code being, uh, you know, he, he would say that Indians are particularly sensitive with aspects of religion and speech, religious speech, so he would, he made particularly um, you know, severe penalties which didn't exist in, in common law in England at the time for, for India. Similarly, as we know, the constitution drafters, while they were very much, you know, uh, in an exercise of combining constitutional law, but very much, well, they were also trying to adapt it to Indian realities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so although that was there, but we, con we constantly hear that the whole system, the whole uh, idea of, of, of such enactments or the ways in which um, the legal system itself has been, has been, has been um, thought, thought about are deeply uh, Anglo-American, and this is a real problem in, at some level. And this is what Mrs. Gandhi and Mohan astute politicians that they are, they were, um, got the got that point, you know. So, so, but the problem is that we assume that um, there can be an organicity mm -hmm. between uh, between legal system and and, and and society. I mean, this is of course the problem of legal transplants, as we call it in in, in, in sociological literature. I mean, the question of you know history of 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 laws all over the world has been, you know, of, of laws being transplanted from one place to another, Roman law being introduced in, 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 the, in Western Europe, then other parts, and, and of course, through colonialism. The idea that there, there needs, there is an organic relationship between the, the legal system and the society um, uh, itself is, is moot, really, because uh, almost, uh, because the very history of, of, uh, of, of laws all over the world is, is the history of, of legal transplants and Roman law being introduced in Western Europe and then, um, uh, you know, rest of, uh, of, 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 of the Americas. Um, and uh, of course, uh, 
colonialism introducing law everywhere um, in, in you know whether Anglo or French or, or, or based on the mother country. So uh, the idea that there 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 would be correspondence. This is um, this is a debate that Alan Watson and an university of from University of Edinburgh. Uh, a Roman law historian ha has had with many uh, legal sociologists uh, in the last few decades, and this is uh, about whether. Well, he says this is how actually law progresses. That's know? right. That, that that this is how it works. That you know, you introduce a law and then it grows and it you know, of, it of the law. Of the law. So so it's a, but 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 to, this is one way of thinking about it. But but there is a problem. There is a problem. That, That's right. Yeah. And so perhaps as it, I think. To, to bring it back to PIL, I think this is an interesting time to discuss this because with going back to the Sabrimala judgment, which you had mentioned, and I think it would be the, uh, I think a discussion on PIL now would be incomplete without a reference to the original Sabrimala judgment. Let's not yeah, uh, get into this review and what's going to happen here. Sure. Uh, although there are some interesting questions about procedure making a a comeback even in whether this review should be heard or not. But in Indu Balotra's dissenting judgment, you do find a very clear evidence of the fact that there is some return of a procedural question. Yeah. Now, it's quite ironical that the return of the procedural question is on the issue of standing, the very thing that public interest litigation <laughs> yeah, was yeah. supposed to relax. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the only question that yeah. need not the answer in right. public interest litigation, right. but you see the return of stand, return of procedure to public interest litigation seems to be through the question of standing, yeah. which seems to be representative of a larger discomfort with the institutional role of the court and what it does to judicial legitimacy yeah. if courts are going to uh, pontificate and rule. Uh, on matters that are not seen as primarily questions of law. So how do you look at uh, Justice Malhotra's dissent in Shabrimala? So I am quite sympathetic to it. So my view has been that, you know, when, uh, you know, the, the, the relaxation of Lukashenko, as you said, is the most well-known aspect of PIL. This is the very different definition of PIL if we, if we studied it. But the difficulty with, with its design was that, you know, uh, while the relaxation itself was, was a good idea, but there was no institutionalization of rules with regard to understanding standing. Uh, so, um, so this is actually best explained through Clark Cunningham's uh, counterposing what he calls representation standing and citizen standing. That's right. That is uh, that while the, in, in, even in cases of representation standing, uh, it would not just be the, the the parties affected or the, the victim concerned who would be approaching the court. It could be a representative of that person. Um, but um, in fact, this idea of representation standards is, is, is an extrapolation of the idea of habeas corpus. That's right. in, in, in habeas corpus cases, obviously, the victim cannot approach the court directly. So somebody, uh, the next friend, approaches the court on, on, on his or her behalf. A representation standing would be an extrapolation of that idea, and that was in fact what it was uh, in the in the in the so-called so -called first PIL, which was the Hussein al Khatun case. Um, now, the problem was that instead of Relaxing it and, and thinking in terms of representation standing, what the court did was that it threw the baby with the bathwater. It it embraced what what uh, Clark Cunningham calls citizen standing, which is that any citizen who's who's uh, you know who thinks there is a problem, social problem uh, in, in in a country, can just approach the court and ask for a solution as, as a citizen. 
Now, the difficulty with that, with that was that, you know, that person did not really bring anything necessarily to the court. He did not bring any special knowledge of any kind, any, uh, any, any particular, that the facts of the case as we study in, as, 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 as law students became increasingly irrelevant in that sense. So it became like what in criminal justice system we have the informant, you know, filing an FIR who, who may, not, may or may not be directly affected at all. So, so what you would suppose I witness some, uh, some uh, criminal activity happening and I bring, and I bring it to the attention of the, co to the police and file an FIR. I am actually not that important to the case. The police can take it to whatever direction he, uh, they, they deem fit. And this is what happened increasingly in, in PIL cases that um, uh, that the court basically would could could treat the petition as just information that it could take to whatever direction it, it deemed fit. So um, so I think uh, in in the Sabrimala uh, uh, case, uh, uh, Justice Malhotra does try to bring that. I mean the the, the problem that 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 Justice uh, Bhagwati and others, uh, you know, from SP Gupta onwards. Uh, uh, the first, uh, this is the first, uh, that this case, uh, where there was, first time there was a theorization of what PIL was supposed to be. Uh, the difficulty was that they opened the, the gate too wide, you know, that anybody could, uh, you know, anybody could take any matter to court without having any, any stake in the matter, in, in, in the issue concerned. So that, so this is Manodra trying to bring that question. I think it's, it's important that who are you, you know, to, to bring this issue when you are not even actually directly concerned at all. And, and this is a problem. This is a, yeah. So I think last question for me. Uh, after Justice Malhotra's dissent, of course, there have been similar noises of this kind that we've heard. The Chief Justice of India has recently said that he's aware of the fact that uh, the court, particularly its PIL jurisdiction, is used to settle political disputes. Right. Uh, and I think there is perhaps an increasing recognition of the fact that in your language, the gates have been opened too wide. So having studied this for now the better part of your academic career, yeah. uh, if I were to ask you to play uh, soothsayer, where do you think PIL is going in India? Do you think that it's going to be more of the same or do you think there's going to be some kind of clawback? I wish there was some kind of clawback, but I don't see that happening. You see, the courts have always been inconsistent when talking about rules with regard to PIL or any such thing. You know, the standard issue of people going to court with regard to um, going directly under Article 30 to the Supreme Court and the court saying go back to High Court, where of course it, it periodically takes it does the opposite as well. So, um, so the thing about the the last 40 years of of PIL and 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 uh, the concomitant informality has been that the court has actually never really given a clear position on, on many of these issues. Whenever it wants, it can become extremely technical and strict. And whenever it wants, uh, you know, it can, it can depart from it. Um, you know, it can argue even now that, well, it's, it's a factual question which we cannot go into as a writ court, while it routinely does so in, in so many matters. So, the, so the, so the, uh, the, the court has never really uh, you know, given clear principles, it's actually refused uh, multiple times to frame clear rules uh, to abide by PIL. So that's the very nature of uh, of, of the evolution of the last 40 years that, you know, there would periodically be um, a judge um, in some matters who would, you know, there was Justice Kaju in the first half of, of, uh, of the 2018s. Uh, who would you know suddenly um, talk about being strict with that and that Aravali golf club yeah and when Justice Kaparia was uh, was the chief justice he also tried to tried to uh, get a little strict with those things but you know it 
it went away immediately with, with the next chief justice and and you know with regard to the so called settling of political schools this is of course a old story at some level you know this has been happening and the court has taken cognizance of this also mm. in multiple instances so whenever it wants it could call it passa income litigation and publicity interest litigation and all that and political interest litigation the thing is that that doesn't actually address these are just symptoms doesn't address the core problem that you know you cannot uh, have uh, an, a, a jurisdiction without any rules and the mm. court has refused to uh, consistently actually uh, make such maybe i think that's a that's a good point to leave it that you can't have a jurisdiction without rules and that's what pil has become and maybe this behooves everyone who watches the court with great interest journalists lawyers law students and perhaps most of all us legal academics that we uh, engage with judgments of the court not on the basis of who won or lost but on the basis of the rules that the court did lay down or didn't lay down and the principles it enunciated and it didn't it was a real pleasure having you anuj thanks very much for joining me thank you arvind my pleasure time for clatter our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat i thought my last week's question was tough but we had a number of right answers the paramilitary force that has now been integrated into the pakistani army were the gilgit scouts and the winner from last week is pankaj yadav congratulations pankaj you have an amazon gift voucher coming your way time for this week's quiz listen carefully couple of red herrings in there there was once a case where at the behest of a certain mr x five individuals including mr x himself entered into an agreement when the time came for the enforcement of the agreement x tried to back out however he was not allowed to do so as a direct fallout from the agreement a court of law sentenced four out of the five individuals to death by hanging later a five judge bench of the supreme court of the relevant jurisdiction heard appeals against the conviction each delivered a separate opinion but the conviction was eventually upheld notably one of the judges mr y acquitted the convicts on the grounds that the public at large were in favor of acquittal he held that the case required a pragmatic approach and in the interest of maintaining public confidence in the court the convicts must be acquitted name this seminal case do write in with your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in all right answers go into a pool and you stand to win a prize that's an amazon gift voucher so thanks very much for listening to this week's episode of justify look forward to having you listen in in future weeks adjourned if you enjoyed listening to this podcast follow us on twitter at vidhi_india for regular updates follow us on apple podcast google podcast or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode email us at justify@vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode we look forward to hearing from you